may turn to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. The deacons are gathering our, uh, the cups that remain out there. So if you could pass that to them at the end of the row so that we can get those out of the way for you guys. Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. We're going to read through verse 25, and we will do that in just a second. So as you're turning, let me just say happy Father's Day. Um, for those of you out here who are fathers, you can relate to the various and unique Father's Day's gifts that you have received over your period of being a father. And uh, one of mine, most recent ones, my... Uh, Beautiful youngest daughter brought me this Father's Day gift in this beautiful paper sack last night. Could not wait. Uh, had to have me open it today. It's actually, she's also very uh, environmentally conscious because this actually used to say Happy Mother's Day and Mother's has been marked off and it says now Father's Day. Um, and with an assortment of markers and a nice beautiful card and a bunch of other very unique and thoughtful gifts from my daughter. And it is a treasure to me, although it might not be a treasure to anyone else. So this is the gift I received uh, this morning, or actually last night, because she couldn't wait. I had to have it last night before Father's Day. Now, my other daughter made me a beautiful painting this morning, that, uh, or made it yesterday and gave it to me uh, this morning. And we've all received various interesting Father's Day gifts. But I think probably the best gift, if you're a father here, was the moment that you were told, or the moment you found out, that you were going to have your first child. A very exciting moment. Um, and I don't know how it happened for all the rest of you in here, but uh, I remember being sent back to the grocery store to buy another one of the little testing kits <laughs> to make sure, and buy two, buy two, and to make sure because we couldn't believe what we were seeing. And that little, little circle there had a positive symbol in it. Meaning that we were going to have our first child. And at that moment, uh, I knew I was already a father. I didn't have to wait nine more months. I was a father. And uh, it was a tremendous gift to find out that information. Unfortunately, Father's Day is in danger of becoming an irrelevant holiday in America. It's an uncomfortable holiday for a lot of people. Um, it may be uncomfortable for some in this room. Maybe you didn't know your own father very well. Maybe the father of your children is not involved in the lives of your children to any significant degree. At my daughter's swim practice last Friday, I overheard a conversation on our way out from practice. And one parent asked another parent, so what are you guys doing for Father's Day? And the response was, nothing. Father's Day means nothing to us. My daughters haven't seen their father in years. And it broke my heart to hear that. And I'm sure the person who asked the question felt very uncomfortable after they had asked that question. But that's America today. That's reality. It's now up to a percentage that is absolutely staggering. That six out of ten children are growing up with absent fathers in our culture today. Study after study after study has shown that the lack of a father in the home can have a devastating effect on society. Our increasingly politically correct and morally licentious society will tell us that it's not important how the home is made up. So long as there's love, so long as the children receive love, it doesn't matter who's in the home. But the data doesn't back up that statement. 
course, neither do the scriptures. The recipe for strong families is one father and one mother in a committed, loving, monogamous marriage relationship for life. But it's an amazing thing that that statement that I just said would be considered bigoted to a lot of people in our culture today. That that very simple statement that the recipe for strong families is one father and one mother in a committed, loving, monogamous marriage for life. That that statement alone, some people would rail against that statement and say, you are being narrow-minded and bigoted to say something like that. It is a startling thing that our society has come so far that a, a, a common sense statement like that is considered wrong. Secular scientific studies have shown that in, in society, in segments of society where the fathers are not present, there is increased crime, there is increased poverty, there is increased sexual abuse among children, there is increased school dropout rates. Studies show us that the likelihood of boys who grow up without dads is very high that they will abandon their own families. 50% of young men who grow up without fathers end up in jail. Studies show us that girls who grow up without dads are much more likely to engage in promiscuous sexual behavior and three times more likely to become unwed mothers, thus feeding into an almost unbreakable cycle of fatherlessness in our society. As I already mentioned, six out of ten Children in America are growing up without their fathers in the home. And in some communities, especially in the inner cities, that rate is as high as 9 out of 10 children growing up without fathers. It's an absolutely overwhelming thing to consider. And the failure that fathers, the failure of our fathers in this culture has led to abuse, abandonment, and also the increase of abortion. But we praise God for grace. I know some in this room who grew up without fathers. And we can praise God that God has intervened in their life. And they've been able to go ahead and, and move forward. And now today are living as strong fathers in their homes. We praise God for the church to whom he gave the charge to care for the fatherless. And to care for the widows. There is a reason that our real religion plays itself out with such acts. The church is to be a healing agent in the culture. Of course, the gospel ultimately is what people need, and so we share the gospel as we go out and we minister to the fatherless and the widows. But beyond the statistics, beyond um, uh, all the studies, what really shows me one of the one of the reasons I know that fatherhood and motherhood are so important is the fact that God chose to send his son into the world, and he chose to do so by placing his son in the care of an earthly mother and father. That alone should show us how magnificently important these roles are to God. He chose to use the vessel of a two-parent mother-father family to care for, nurture, guard, and guide the promised Messiah, his son, the second person of the Trinity, God made flesh. God ordained two parents. One, a mother to carry and nurture the Christ child and who could give him the true bloodline of the house of David. And number two, a father to guard and guide the Christ child who could give him the true legal right to the throne of David through adoption. 
So today we continue our series, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ, which is a journey through the Gospels, uh, looking at the life of Christ, and, and in doing so, learning to enjoy and savor uh, Christ and what he has accomplished even more. And we come to the account of Jesus' earthly adoptive father, Joseph. And we've already looked at Mary, uh, the angelic pronouncement of the, of the virginal conception, as well as Mary's song that we traditionally call the Magnificat. But we haven't said much about Joseph. Joseph is Jesus' earthly, albeit non-biological, father. And so we're going to look at that here this morning. And let me just say that when we planned out seeing and savoring Jesus Christ, this series, and began to look at how it could break down and looked at some different gospel harmonies to try to see how, what would be a good breakdown of this series, we did not intend to put the story of Joseph on Father's Day. God did that. He just, uh, I'm just amazed at how these things sort of work out, you know. I, I am not a good planner. I usually can't plan beyond seven days. So most of you guys know that. I usually can't plan beyond about seven days. And so when things happen that are like this, well, you know, that the story of Joseph falls on Father's Day, that's just God gets all the glory and the credit. Well, he gets all the glory and credit anyway, but still. So let's read Matthew. Go ahead and, if you've already turned there, um, let's look at Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. We'll put the words on the screen as well. In case you need them, but I encourage you to pick up a Bible. There are Bibles in front of you in the pews, or in the pew, those aren't pews, in the seats with the little baskets underneath. You can grab a Bible there, and if you don't have a Bible at home, I want you to take that with you. But we're going to start in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18. And the Word of God reads Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus." For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we ask, Lord, that you would bless the reading of your word, and Father, grant me the grace to preach your word accurately. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we've already had this morning to, to participate in the Lord's Supper uh, together as a body of believers, and to therefore proclaim the death of Jesus Christ. And so as we come now and look at the birth of Jesus Christ, or the events leading up to it, help us, Father, to recognize and believe absolutely 100% that Jesus did come. He was God-made flesh. Because those elements, Father, mean nothing if we don't believe that Jesus had real flesh that was really broken and real blood that was really spilt. So, Father, we ask, Lord, that you would guide us during this time. Let your Holy Spirit have his way. In our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I, I 
broke down the, 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 the message today in three basic segments um, after reading it. Just saw three basic segments just kind of jump off, off the, the page here. It was a little, bit, a little bit of a struggle to come up with an outline this time. But, so I'm just going to give you the three segments I see. We're just going to walk through the text based upon those three segments and, and, and look at what the Lord is teaching us about Jesus from this text. But also we'll look at Joseph's reaction and and, and how he received the message and how he responded to it. So here are your three points, real simple. And you can go ahead and write all three of them down. We're first going to look at Joseph's reaction to Mary's news. Then we're going to look at Joseph's receiving of the angelic news. And finally, Joseph's response to the good news. So first, Joseph's reaction to Mary's news. Matthew begins this section by telling us that before they, Joseph and Mary, came together, and that means came together as husband and wife in the marriage relationship, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now it's very interesting here, this phrase, she was found, uh, it, it gives us the indication that she didn't really go out and make it known, but she was found, it was discovered. That's how the, 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 the phrase means that, that it, was, it was made known, it was revealed. Perhaps she hadn't told Joseph at all. Remember that Luke told us, when we remember back to the angelic pronouncement to Mary, that Luke tells us that immediately upon what the angel told her, she went to be with her cousin Elizabeth and Zechariah. She went to the Judean hill country to visit them. Matter of fact, she stayed there for three months. And we have no indication that she stopped to tell Joseph. Perhaps she did. But since we have no indication, and since Matthew uses this phrase it, that it was known, that it came to be known, that... I think we can lean towards assuming that Joseph did not know. But probably when he saw her three months later, she comes back three months pregnant. She returns from Elizabeth's house and he saw her, her that she had a baby bump. He begins to assume what every single man would assume. Every single man who's ever walked the planet in the history of the wor world would assume. And that is that Mary has gotten pregnant by the means of another man. And therefore he had a very tough decision to make. The scriptures tell us in verse 19 that Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now we need to understand a little bit here. We need to understand a little bit of the culture of Jewish uh, betrothal and marriage in order to understand why Joseph is making such a decision like this. Okay, in Jewish life, there were three stages to the marriage process. There was number one, the engagement. And actually, this was the point when the children were very small and the parents while the children were very young, would arrange a marriage with another family. I personally think we should go back to this, okay? I'd much rather have my kids marry some people I know, some children from families I know, and I've seen them grow up, and I say, okay, that's the one. And usually it was within the local communities there. Nazareth wasn't a big, very big town. So at some point, Mary's family and Joseph's family got together and said, hey, you know, little Mary here would, would go great with little Joseph here. So let's go ahead and engage them. And the plan will be that they get married when the time comes, when they're old enough. Historians even tell us that wealthier Jewish families um, actually hired professional matchmakers to help them arrange the marriage. So there was actually a, a job of a professional matchmaker who would go out and find the perfect match uh, for the child in your home. Usually, though, it just happened between families who knew one another who were in the same town or the same region. So that was the engagement. Then there was the betrothal. This usually happened when the child, children came of age and, 
remember in, 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 in Jewish life, you became an adult at 12 or 13, all right? Around that age is when you became, were considered an adult. That's one of the reasons, I, and I'm sticking with the phrase, we call our youth here young adults. Okay, because that's actually what they are. They have become now young adults. They're not ready to go off on their own. They obviously can't make a lot of decisions on their own, but they are becoming uh, full-fledged adults, and we call them young adults. And so around the age of 12 to 14, somewhere in this point, that engagement would become a legally binding agreement. There would be the exchange of, uh, of the dowry, of, of, of some sort of money between the parents, and that betrothal would become a legally binding agreement. Now, the couple could not live together during this time, and that betrothal would usually last for about a year. The marriage would not be consummated, the couple would not live together, and the betrothal period would go on for about a year. During that year, the husband would continue to secure the finances uh, in order to be able to provide for his, his, his wife. And also, he would traditionally, during that time, build a house. He would construct his house during that year for his, for his family. Um, if you've ever seen the movie... Um, I think it's called the Nativity Story. It's it's the it's um, the video. We, it's become a tradition in our fam family to watch it uh, on Christmas Eve, and uh, it's a very good film about the the Nativity, and very historically accurate in a lot of ways. And and you have this story, and you see this whole process, and and Joseph is building the house for Mary during this period of time. So during that year, as I said, all the details were being put together. And if either party decided to pull out of the relationship during that time, it required a legal divorce. And if either party during that time had sexual relations with someone, it would be considered adultery. So that's how serious it was. And then finally there was the third phase, which was the marriage. This was a ceremonial celebration. It usually involved a wedding feast. It would probably last about seven days. And after that ceremony, the marriage would be consummated. So Joseph and Mary were in the betrothal stage when the Holy Spirit came upon Mary and she became pregnant with the Lord Jesus. The word says that Joseph, being a just man, decided to divorce her quietly. Now I struggled. I really struggled with this section of Scripture all week long and really wrestled with it because it says Joseph was a just man. And uh, that meaning, if you take the Old Testament sense of that word, being a just man, it meant that he believed that justice needed to be served according to the Mosaic Law. And if justice was to be served according to the Mosaic Law, that mean, meant the penalty for her adultery, her apparent adultery, would have been death. So it says Joseph was a just man. But Joseph was not a zealous, bloodthirsty man. We also see from this text he was a man of great compassion and great discernment. Scripture tells us in verse 20 that he pondered or he considered these things. That indicates that he, this wasn't just some quick decision. He really thought about these things. He wasn't going to make a hasty emotional decision. And God's law also did provide for a divorce. And it provided for a divorce traditionally in two ways in Jewish life. There could be a very public divorce that could involve more of a humiliation to the one who had committed adultery. And there was a more quiet type of divorce, usually that involved only a couple of witnesses. And he chose the latter of the two. What we see in Joseph is his desire to see God's law upheld. He didn't just overlook this. He was a just man. But he also has tremendous compassion and a desire. And he has, a, I think, a tremendous love 
for Mary. I think her character has probably demonstrated that she's honorable and pure, and surely he's having a hard time reconciling her having a baby with her character. He doesn't want to put her to shame. And we see all throughout the Old Testament God's mercy and compassion being demonstrated even when people broke the law, even when people like David broke the law, laws that required death. And so Joseph here, he was a just man. He did want to see God's law upheld. But he also knew that he had ground within the law to just divorce her and to divorce her quietly and not put her to shame. I can imagine that he spent many sleepless nights. She comes back to town, he's having sleepless nights just trying to resolve in his heart how he's going to deal with this. What is he supposed to do? And he finally makes his decision. He resolves to, okay, I'm going to divorce her quietly. And probably lays down his head, okay, finally I've made my decision. Now I'm going to have a good night's sleep. When all of a sudden in the middle of that night, while he's trying to lay down his head and get a good night's sleep, his sleep is interrupted like it never had been before. The second thing we see in this passage is that Joseph receives angelic good news. Verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. Now right there, the first words out of the angel's mouth, presumably the angel Gabriel, uh, Matthew doesn't tell us. But the first words were attention grabber type words. Joseph, son of David. Now Joseph knew he was from the house of David. Okay, we know that because he goes back to Bethlehem when the census We'll read about that later. When the census is given and, and he has to go back to his hometown, he knows he's from the house of David. But this greeting, Joseph, son of David, is a royal greeting. Son of David implies more than just a mere descendant, but an heir, an heir to the throne. Joseph had probably never been called that before. At least not in this way. He was the carpenter, remember? He was the town handyman. And he was from a despised, obscure town, Nazareth. And he was very poor. He was one of the least, from one of the least of the towns in all of Israel. But here stands the angel saying to Joseph, son of David, giving him a royal title. Matthew here is tying us back to the genealogy of verses 1 through 7, verse 1 of chapter 1 uh, through verses 17, where he established the legal lineage of Joseph as an heir to David's throne. It's through this adoptive line of Joseph that Jesus is legally the king of Israel. The angel goes on to say, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Now there must have been some fear in, in Joseph's heart. Sure, he didn't want to preserve Mary's honor and divorce her quietly. But also, if he chose to marry her, everyone would assume that he was the one responsible for her pregnancy. Thus, he would be viewed as immoral and his own life could be in danger. But the angel goes on to tell him what the angel had already told to Mary. And that is, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. What a relief this must have been to Joseph to hear this news. He obviously loved Mary. And now she has been vindicated. The child that is in her is no ordinary child. For he has no father. He is conceived of the Holy Spirit. Matthew goes out of his way to tell us three times in the space of eight verses that this child was virginally conceived supernaturally through the work of the Holy Spirit. The first hint came back in verse 16. If you'll just look back a few verses at the end of the genealogy, and I think we pointed this out back when we did the genealogy. All throughout the genealogy, you see it saying, so-and-so was the father of so-and-so. Or if you have the King James, so-and-so beget so-and-so. 
And so that's just sort of how it goes. And, and in verse 16, it continues. It says, Jacob, the father of, or beget, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. All of a sudden, there's this absence of this phrase, the father of. It's not there all of a sudden between Joseph and Jesus. It's there between all these other people until you get to verse 16. And it says clearly that Joseph, well, it, says, it doesn't say that he was the father of Jesus at all. He doesn't beget him at all. But that instead, that Jesus was the son. He was born of Mary. And then also we read later what the angel says in verse 22. It says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. This prophecy is from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And in that passage, Isaiah calls this, this virgin birth a sign. Mary is not just a young lady who got pregnant by earthly means. She was a young lady who had never been with a man and was impregnated by the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. A sign that God was now visiting his people. My friends, Matthew makes the virginal conception very clear, as did Luke. And thus it stands as a vital doctrine at the heart of our faith. If we do not have the virgin conception, we do not have the incarnation. And if we do not have the incarnation, we do not have a faith to stand upon. In order for Christ to be 100% God and 100% man, the virgin birth is a vital doctrine. The modernists dismiss it as a myth. The postmodernist dismisses it as irrelevant. But the biblicist must say that it is a historical fact and it's vitally relevant. Without it, we don't have a Lord to be served, nor do we have a Savior who can save. Without the virginal conception, and thus the incarnation, we do not have a Savior who can save. Jesus had to be 100% man. Because mankind bore the legal responsibility for sin, and thus man would have to die for sin. Not just any man, a perfect man, whose blood was sinless. Thus, Jesus also had to be 100% God. He had to provide an infinitely valuable sacrifice for sin, a sacrifice only God could provide, perfect, without blemish, able to bear all the sins of all his people. And it's all over the scriptures. The people who deny the virgin birth, or who deny the incarnation, and if you deny the virgin birth, you deny the incarnation. People who deny it have to ignore very large portions of Scripture all over the place. Hebrews 2.14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Colossians 1.19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. The incarnation is not a second-tier doctrine. It's vital. It's not dispensable. The Lord's Supper means nothing if we reject the virgin birth and therefore reject the incarnation. It means nothing. Okay, we, as Deemer said, we proclaim the Lord's death until his return. But we can't proclaim the Lord's death if, if he didn't actually have real flesh that was pierced and broken. If he didn't have real blood that was spilt. 
Now, granted, the mystery of the incarnation and the virgin birth is a mountain too high for us to scale, but we are to keep scaling it nonetheless as we ponder the fact that divine omnipotence clothed himself in the flesh of infant vulnerability. Jesus, 100% God, his divine nature has no mother. Jesus, 100% man, his human nature had no father. He is Emmanuel, God with us. John 1.14 says that he became flesh, tabernacled with us. Colossians 2.9 says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So what news that Joseph receives via angelic revelation? Now that's a serious Father's Day gift. If the news you received when you looked at that little thing and saw the positive signal was exciting, imagine this news. Amazingly exciting that God is entrusting him to be the earthly adoptive father of Emmanuel, God with us. We've received the same news, not in the same way Joseph did, because he was, he was entrusted with the responsibility of Jesus, being Jesus' earthly father. But we've received the same news in the sense that, do we believe this or not? We, we're hearing it now. Do we believe what the angel said? It's illogical. It doesn't make sense. Joseph's mind couldn't have comprehended these truths that the Holy Spirit had placed a holy child in Mary's womb. And that that child is to be God with us, God in our presence. And so we, like Joseph, must ponder these things and ask ourselves, do I actually believe this? If you do, then I hope you partook today. If you don't, I hope you didn't. Verse 21 says that, shows us that his presence with us, God with us, was for a purpose. 21 says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. She shall bear a son. Joseph and Mary very well may have been the very first couple to know the sex of their child before sonograms ever came around. I thought that's pretty cool. Okay, so Mary's, I don't know, they may be in the house that Joseph built painting the room blue, and the neighbors are coming and go, what are you doing? Oh, we know something you don't know. <laughs> okay? They're, so they already knew the sex of the child. It's going to be a son. It had to be a son. You shall call his name Jesus. The same message that Mary received, okay, now Joseph receives. And as we mentioned before, the name Jesus is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua, or Yeshua, and it's a combination of two words, a combination of the, of, the, of the name of God, Yahweh, and the word salvation. The long form of the word in the Hebrew, of the, of the, of the name Joshua in Hebrew, is Yehoshua, which means God is salvation. The shorter and more common form was Yeshua, which simply means God saves. But Joseph, unlike Mary, is given the reason for the name. Now, Mary was just told his name's going to be Jesus. But Joseph here is given by the angel the reason that his name needs to be Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. Let's break that down a little bit. He will save his people from their sins. He will. He will. Jesus will. Of his own accord, he will lay down his life to save his people. He was not going to be forced to. He was not going to be made to. He was not going to be coerced to. By his own volition, by his own will, he laid down his life. John 10, 18. No one takes it from me. This is Jesus speaking. But I lay it down 
of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. For he will lay down his life. He will save his people. He says he will save. Save means rescue. And it says he will save. He doesn't make salvation a potential possibility for people. The word says that he will save his people. It doesn't say he's going to make salvation possible for a lot of people. He will save his people. Jesus will accomplish what he came to accomplish. When Jesus shed his blood on that rugged old cross, he didn't do it hoping that it would have some sort of effect. He did it intentionally knowing that his blood would accomplish something, namely the redemption of his children. John 6, verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he gave me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks upon the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus speaks very definitively here. And all throughout the scriptures that what he's going to do, he is going to save his people. He's not just going to provide a potential salvation for a lot of people. Jesus knew those who would be his, and he accomplished the salvation of his people when he went to the cross. And it says his people, not just the Jewish people, not Jews ethnically at least, but those who are Jews inwardly, meaning those of faith, according to Paul. Those are his people, made up of every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. Paul's letter to Titus tells us that Jesus gave himself up to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So Jesus, he came, he laid down his life of his own accord. He saves, he will save definitively. He has a people in mind that he has saved he shed his blood for, and he saves them, according to the angel here, from their sins. Sin is the ultimate problem. The word save here can refer to being saved from danger or illness or calamity. And certainly all those things are true in Christ eventually. But ultimately all danger, illness, and calamity is the result of a much greater problem, which is sin. And that was why this baby was coming, ultimately, to deal with sin and to save us from it. So that's some serious angelic news that Joseph receives. Needless to say, Joseph has a lot more to ponder now. How is he to react to such glorious truth? And there's only one way to respond when you hear such glorious truth, and that is in faith. And so the last point is Joseph's response to the good news. Joseph's response to the good news. Verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. Now let me pause right here real quick. He did not have sexual relationships with her until Christ was born. But it says the word until. Meaning that eventually he did. She was his wife. And in this very book here, Matthew, we are told he has brothers and sisters. The doctrine of Mary's perpetual virginity totally contradicts scripture. It's funny that in the first two chapters of Luke, in the first chapter of Matthew... Just by reading the scriptures, you can undo the Mary worship that's out there. All you need to know about Mary, just read Luke chapter 1, 2, and Matthew chapter 1. And you will see that the Mariology that goes on in this world is not based upon the scriptures. And so, he doesn't, uh, come, he does, they, they are not united in their marriage in that sense until she gives birth to the son. 
And he called, according to the scriptures here, Joseph called his name Jesus. So how does he respond? He responds with obedient belief, faith, and it's a faith that's real because it acts. Faith that is real is a faith that takes action. He did as the angel commanded. He, number one, took Mary to be his wife at the risk of his own reputation and his own life. And number two, he named the child Jesus. Real faith requires real action, real following, real obedience. You may sit out there and say, well, no angel has come and spoken to me. Well, friends, as I say many times, you have better. You have a whole book of God speaking to you. So we can't come up with some excuse, well, I can't obey like Joseph did because I haven't had some angelic pronouncement made to me. Nope. You have an infallible word, 66 books of God speaking directly to you, and you are to respond in the same way. You are to believe and obey. If we believe the message of this book, namely the gospel message, then that will result in a life of action. It should at least. You will repent. You will obey. You will act. You will follow. If your belief does not result in and continue to result in action, then your faith is in no way real. And that's not my words. That's what James tells us. It's a dead faith. Oh, but I prayed a prayer when I was whatever age. I don't care. If your faith isn't demonstrated by real actions, it's not a real faith. There's no assurance of belief when that belief has no significant effect on the way we live our lives. And I mean the very mundane details of our lives. I mean the channel you choose to look at when you have the remote in your hand. I'm choosing the checks you choose to write when you have the checkbook in your hand. The mundane things of life, not only the big things of life. If Christ is not making a significant difference in all of those areas, then we have no real assurance of faith. But there's great assurance of belief when our lives are so radically transformed that we can't help but follow, obey, act, and continually strive to live a God-glorifying life of zealous good works. Joseph acts out his faith here. And from this point forward, when you look at the life of Joseph, he leads his home. I love it. Joseph is a model of father leadership. He leads his home from this point forward. He takes charge. The angel appears to him, not Mary. He is warned about Herod about to kill all the babies. He's the one told to take your, child, your, your, your family to Egypt. He's the one that's told when to bring them back. He's the one that makes the decision to go live in the Nazareth. Joseph leads from this point forward. And we'll study some of that as we get to those passages. He demonstrates his faith in the good news with that simple statement there at the end. And he called his name Jesus. This child, my adopted son, born of the supernatural work of God, is the Messiah, the God-man, and his name is God Saves. So on this Father's Day, let us glory in Christ. And let us honor this young man, Joseph. What a Father's Day gift he received. Let, our, let his actions be ours today. That although, one, we may react to the glorious and mysterious truths and supernatural truths of God's revealed word with skepticism and doubt, 
let us do the second thing he did, which is to hear and to receive the revelation today of the great and glorious good news that God did come to be with his people in the form of an infant. And let us do as Joseph did. Let us believe with faith and put all of our trust in this Jesus who came to save us from our sins. That's what the incarnation is all about. That's what this was all about here today. God coming to save. This bread, this juice, also reminds us that a baby was born with real blood, with real flesh, and to grow up under the nurture and care of a father and a mother, and to live and then to die a death that would ransom his people from sin, a death that would destroy the power of death and destroy the evil one, and that he would rise victorious over that death. And it is in him and him alone that we put all of our hope and our faith. So if you're here this morning and these truths of God's word are hard for you to swallow. Let me tell you, it had to be hard for Joseph to swallow as well. The easy route for Joseph still would have been to say, that must have been some weird nightmare. I must be worrying about this too much. I'm going to go on the easy route here and make sure I'm not getting all wrapped up in all of this stuff. The easy route to take this morning is to say, nah, I don't really embrace that stuff because, you know, virgins don't have babies. And, well, how can God be 100% God, 100% man? I just I don't get all that. It's religion. It's good for you. You know, it helps you get through the day. My challenge to you this morning is to put your faith in Christ alone. He is the 100% God, 100% man, God-man. And only because he is the 100% God-man can you be saved from your sins. Because no other sacrifice will do. The blood of bulls and goats are insufficient, as Hebrews tells us. So are your good works. They're totally insufficient. Your good works are the equivalent of slaughtering goats and bulls before the Lord and saying, Okay, God, can you accept this? He takes no pleasure in that. Filthy rags to him. What he takes pleasure in is the sacrifice of his son who came to save a people and who are united with him so that he no longer sees those, those blemishes and all that sin, but instead he sees the righteousness of his own son that's been imputed to them. Their sins wiped away. They are brought into union with the son. Therefore they become children of God, co-heirs with Christ. That's the gospel. That's the glorious good news. That's where you put all your hope this morning. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you now and we, we acknowledge that our puny little brains are woefully insufficient to grasp the glory and the grandeur of not only the virgin birth, but the fact that the second person in the Trinity, the Son, came to live among us and took on flesh. That's absolutely astounding. My brain can't figure it out. But God, don't let us embrace the postmodern sort of careless very apathetic sort of attitude, sort of attitude that the world takes towards 
deep doctrine today. And just say, I don't even want to think about that. If it's true, it's true. If it's not, it's not. I don't want to think about that. God, God forbid that from happening in this church. Instead, let us scale this mountain that we can never climb. Continually seeking to grasp even more wonderfully the truth of the incarnation. The truth of the virgin birth. And let us give you glory, God, for doing such an amazing miracle to redeem a people. Not to potentially redeem some people, but to definitively redeem a people. Praise be to your holy name for what you have accomplished, Father, through the sending of the Son. And Lord, I am thankful. I am thankful for Joseph and Mary. I wonder sometimes how I would have handled those situations. I mean, we break off engagements today like it's no big deal. For Mary and Joseph, it could have meant their life. And they stood strong because you gave them grace. You equipped them with faith to walk this difficult road that you had for them. A road of shame, a road of whispers in the background. But Father, we want to walk that same road. We know that being a believer in Jesus Christ, well, that maybe not won't cause a whole lot of ruffles. It's when we believe in the truth of the Scripture about Jesus Christ. Born of a virgin? Really? You believe that? 100% God? You believe that? Father, help us to walk the same road with the snickers and the sneers and the whispers. But Father, we can't do it apart from your grace, apart from your mercy, apart from you equipping us with the faith to take the next step. So we ask for that, and we ask for it in Jesus' name. And Lord, if there be anybody here who has not embraced the gospel message, that Jesus came as a child in the flesh, that he grew up and in doing so bore the sins of his people by taking the punishment for our sin on a Roman torture instrument, living that perfect life that we could not live. And then he died and rose again, declaring final victory over death and over the grave and over sin and over our enemies, Satan. And now that for all who call upon his name, who put their hope and their faith in him, we can be united to him and those sins be washed away. And that righteous robe be put upon us so that we can stand victorious before God, clean, a child of God. And we can walk through this life with a new zeal to do good works. A zeal that wasn't there before. So God, we ask for you to do your work in the hearts of your people. We trust that you will. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand if you would. I want us to go out on a victorious note today. As we think about well, how Joseph, how this, this, this whole story ends. And Joseph called his name, God saves. God is our salvation. He is a mighty Savior. Salvation came in the form of a baby. Salvation is here. Let's sing this song.